Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13? We have two more sermons left in the Lord's Prayer. Two more. As we think of these two more sermons, I'm going to ask you two more times. What is prayer? Prayer is asking God for things He has promised in His Word. So far, we have asked our Father concerning His kingdom, concerning His glory, concerning His name, or concerning His will. We have asked for daily provision, for daily forgiveness, and now we turn and pray for uh, one last daily provision. Deliverance from evil. It, shouldn't, it is readily apparent that that is a daily need. So let's pick that up in our sermon in a sentence. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there is evil lurking in and around us even down to this very moment. But would you make this time holy and precious and consecrated to us that we, in fact, Lord, may be sanctified by the preaching of your word. Father, we ask for an abundance of your Holy Spirit in this time to help me as I preach and to help us all as we listen. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let us read. Remind you I'm reading from the King James to, to Kendall's Chagrin. Start in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word this morning. Question for you. What do rings, wrinkles, and gray hair all have in common? They all tell a story. You cut down a tree, you see rings. Those rings will tell you of years of abundance and of years of plenty. Wrinkles will tell you a lot about someone, too. You see the wrinkles around the eyes of a farmer after they spent decades squinting in the blistering sun. You can see the wrinkles on someone's face, whether they're a person who smiles often or not, whether their life is one defined by joy or seasons of intense sorrow. <coughs> or even think about gray hair. You run your hands through your hair, and you can remember gray patches sprouting. Up when trials and troubles suck the remnants of life from us. Some of these situations were beyond our control. Some of us, we just walked straight into. But either 
and both, they have left an indelible mark on us. Let me just be very honest. Boxed hair color and old lace skin cream may hide the trappings of time, but like the tree deep within us, the things that we have seen, the things that we have endured, have left an indelible impression at the very core of our being. For some of us here, every time we reach up and run our hands through our hair, we're reminded where we have been. And we look in the future and we shudder at the thought of where we are going. And then we utter a very simple prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we're going to think of that and we're going to ask three questions. What, why, and how? What, why, and how? Let's start. If God says, lead us not into temptation, we must understand what is temptation. What is temptation? Herman Witsius defines temptation as anything or any occasion that excites us to evil. Anything or any occasion that excites us to evil. Now the key word here is excites. You see, there's an evil in us that excites us. An evil that is tempting. You know, it's hard to catch water on fire. It's hard to burn a wet blanket. It does not have the propensity to burn. But kindling does. Paper does. In the same way, our hearts are not like a wet blanket. They're more like a gallon of gasoline. They're just waiting for a match. And all of a sudden, they start burning. Archibald Alexander, in the Thoughts of Religious Experience, says this. As the venomous snake seems harmless when it is cold, it soon manifests its malignity when it is brought near the fire. So often sin is hid in our bosom as though it were dead until some exciting cause draws it forth and the person is surprised to find the strength of their own passion far stronger than anything they could have ever conceived. The potential in our hearts is terrifying. You see, Adam was born with a desire for God. And ever since he ate that forbidden fruit, we have been chasing forbidden things. Our nature has been on evil, on chasing the desires of our flesh. Now you may say, Zach, I'm a Christian. I don't do things like that. Oh, excuse me. If you're a Christian, you know that struggle better than anyone else. You know the struggle between the flesh and the spirit opposing one another. You know like Paul in Romans 7 that says there's a a sin in him, a desire, that when he wants to do something, he can't do it. And when he don't want to do something, well, that's the very thing he does. You know that struggle. Sin in our hearts, Adam's sin has crippled us and corrupted us both spiritually and physically. Even on a physical level, don't we see this? Our bodies are weak and weary. And it is often hard to do spiritual things when you're physically exhausted. 
Taking time off for prayer is hard when pain does not take time off. Focusing on the Bible is hard when your body has seen hard things. In our heart of hearts, we know we're corrupt and crippled, that we're easily excited to evil, that we're easily tempted. But not only is there an evil in us, but just look at this world. Look at this world. This is an easy one, isn't it? I mean, you can't even drive down I-220 without seeing billboards of just the most sinful proclivities. You can't turn on the TV. You can't get on Facebook. You can't even get on Disney Plus anymore without seeing things of a sinful nature. But the fact of the matter is, that's the easy ones. Herman Witsius doesn't say that it's bad things that excite us to evil. He says it's anything. If I may steal the line of Clint Eastwood, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly that excite us to evil. Calvin points this out. Calvin makes the comment, he says, Both adversity and prosperity bring to light the evil concealed in our hearts. We see this in the book of Proverbs. Lord, don't give me too much money or I'll forget you. But don't give me too little lest I steal. Adversity and prosperity. Jesus touches on this in a way that is very unique for our social southern setting. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, Unless a man hate, hate his father and his mother, his wife, his children... And even himself, he cannot be my disciple. Now you may hear that and you think, well, man, Jesus, that's a little strong. Doesn't the Ten Commandments enshrine the nuclear family? Isn't the family a good thing? Yes. The problem is we are quick to elevate the family above God. We want to watch the youngins play ball instead of worship. We want to see the grandkids instead of seeing God. And what we're doing in that moment is we're saying God is good, but family is better. That is something that excites us to evil. And I'll be very honest with you, church. It's hard to say no to a a bad thing. It's even harder to say no to a good thing. C.S. Lewis points this out in The Great Divorce. In this fictitious story, a mother comes up from hell to go find her son in heaven. Now you may think, that's a noble quest. But the problem is, she come to find her son, she could care less about God. George MacDonald points this out. He says, There is something in natural affection which will lead it to eternal love easier than lust. But there's also something in it which makes it easier to stop at the natural level and mistake it for the heavenly. Brass is mistaken for gold a whole lot easier than clay. Natural relations between husbands and wives and parents and children are stronger angels. But when they fall, they are fiercer devils. My friends, it's not just 
the bad. But it's also the good that excites us to evil, that tempts us. Lastly, there's not just an evil in here and there's not just the world, but there is an evil one. The word evil in Greek can mean evil or it can mean evil one. There's some ambiguity here. It's intentional. Don't you think Jesus knew a little bit about both? Before he preached this sermon, before he gave this prayer, he was tempted by the evil one. And I want to mark my words, something that has been said throughout centuries. Those who have God as their friend will have Satan as their enemy. Those who have God as their friend will have Satan as their enemy. This should comfort us, but it should also make our knees knock a little bit. We're flesh and blood, dust and ashes, corrupt and crippled. We carry around in our hearts sin that would love to jump ship and play for the other team. And this is Satan, that ancient serpent, that great dragon who was brass enough to try to tempt the Son of God himself. This is one whose hordes of demons prowl by night and whose sons of disobedience terrorize us by day. But if you listen to our prayer life, how often does the devil come up? According to our prayer life, you would think that we could go toe-to-toe with the devil. My friends, are we, if we are not being, if we're not praying that we are kept being, if we are not praying to be kept from the evil one, odds are we've already been God. Anyone who is a friend of God will have Satan as his enemy. And he will do everything in his power to excite us to evil, to tempt us. Now, when we are faced with such threats, our heads tend to get empty or hard. We tend to ignore or we tend to think it won't bother us. But if we get real still, if we grab that patch of gray hair, we'll be reminded there are times in our life that we have felt like a besieged city with bickering all within. It's exhausting. It's tiring. It's wearisome. But it is never hopeless. It's never hopeless. That's why we ask our second question. If we know what temptation is, then why are we sometimes led into it? Notice that our prayer doesn't say, shove us not into temptation, prod us not into temptation, cast us not into temptation. It says, lead us not into temptation. The very word lead should make us go ding, ding, ding. We are not alone. We are being led. Let me say that again. We are not alone. We are being led. I have a good friend down in the Raymond Church that for one time uh, did something akin to surveying. And they had to cross fields and ditches and rivers and swamps. And one day their boss man dropped them off at a swamp and they had to cross it to survey. 
they had to wade in some water that was about waist high. You couldn't see the bottom, and it looked like a snake pit. One of them refused to go, and the other one said, well, look, if we don't make it to this side, we're not getting home today. So he, treach- he treaches off throughout the swamp. And once he got to about me to Justin, and the other guy realized he hadn't been snake bit or eaten by an alligator, well, then he was content to follow. But you see the pattern there. One left, one followed. Now, everyone who seeks to follow Christ will be led by, down Christ's path. Humiliation and then exaltation. Suffering, then glory. Cross, then crown. Along the way, we must be reminded that we are being led. It was the Spirit that led Christ to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. And it is that same Spirit that leads us. Everything Christ did for us was to pave a trail. The Son of God united with flesh that we may be reconciled to God. The Son of God had the fullness of the Spirit that we may have a measure of the Spirit. The Son of God crushed the head of the serpent. So as Paul says in Romans 16, we too may crush him under our feet. Christ paved the way. Christ poured out the Spirit, and now Christ sets us down the same path. We are led, but we are never alone. Sometimes this will cause us to be led into temptation, to expose our weakness. It's only under pressure that you know what makes a man. You know, I've helped people move. Sometimes you pick up a couch and you say, Well, that ain't heavy. But let them drop their end, and all of a sudden you'll realize, oh, they were carrying the bulk of the weight. Many times God leads us into times of temptation to expose our weakness. He says that in Deuteronomy. He says, I led you through the wilderness, and I made you hunger, and I fed you with manna, that you may know that man lives not by bread alone, but by the very word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Only when He exposes our weakness do we begin to cry out for strength. Other times, God leads us through temptation to humble us. He leads us through temptation to humble us. Many of you might have broken a cow before. How do you break a cow? You get a feet or two of chain, and you chain him up to a D-ring attached to the neck of a donkey. Now you might think, how can that little bitty donkey break that big old cow? That little donkey has a strong neck, and that little bitty donkey will bend that big cow to his will. Now as we look at our own lives, hasn't there been little temptations, little sins, little trials and troubles in our life that have brought us to our knees? For Paul, it was a thorn in the flesh. For Jacob, it was a faulty hip. As we read the Bible, there are several different trials that look small, but they brought the big man down. In the same way, God sends us trials. For some, it might be a sour relationship, a financial hardship, 
a loss of reputation, a physical deformity. All of these things are things that God uses to humble us. You take a man, you put him with the boss he can't stand, but he don't have enough money to quit, it will humble him really quickly. In these moments, God did not get you lost. God did not misplace the map. God did not abandon you to go find directions. God leads us into these very moments to humble us, to knock the rust off, to burn the dross from the silver, to conform us to the image of Christ. God leads us to humble us. Lastly, God leads us into temptation to hone our weapons. Before the Pacific campaign, the U.S. Marines trained a full year in Hawaii on a 44,000-acre ranch. They hit the beach, the Japanese start firing at them. And the man says, Can you believe that Japanese guy just shot at me? And his friend looked at him and said, Well, did you shoot back? And he said, No, I've never been shot at before. You see, he spent an entire year shooting. But it really learned to shoot his weapon once he was shot at. Samuel Rutherford says that the devil is our master fencer to teach us how to use our weapons. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that say this very thing. Zach, I never learned how to pray until I had to pray. Until I got into a situation to which prayer was the only thing I had. Too many times we're like Israel. Assyria is knocking on the door. Their first response was, let's call Egypt. Their second response was, let's throw money at the problem. And then finally Isaiah walks up and says, Let us call upon the name of the Lord. Guess which one worked? It is, John Owen once said that if we do not abide in prayer, we will abide in temptation. It is not by pens or by purses or by phones that our problems go away. It is by prayer. And this is a lesson best learned in temptation. So let me leave us with this, the most important question of every sermon. So what? How will we pray differently? Let me give you three things. First, pray that God would keep us from temptation. A young boy was trying to save his money so he could buy a very expensive toy. His mother walks in his room and she hears the little boy praying, Lord, help me save my money. And dear Lord, would you tell the ice cream man to stop coming down the street? You see, there was temptation he needed to be kept from. I don't care how tough some of us may act, there are some places we should not go, some people we should not see, some things we should not hear. Consider the well and the problem of anger. When the well goes up to blow off steam, 
that's when it's most likely to be harpooned. For some of us, we know that there is a certain individual that grinds our gears, that gets us worked up, and we're most likely to fall into sin. Our prayer should be that the Lord would keep us from that temptation. Secondly, pray that God would support us under trials. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. Trials will come. Christ did not wear a crown of thorns so that we could spread out on a bed of roses. The question's not going to be, will trials come? The question will be, how will we respond? How will we respond to the, sin- the sinful inclinations in our heart? How will we respond when we see things that excite us toward evil? Some men and women say this, I can handle it. That has been the famous last words of many a people. Instead, we should pray, Lord, support us. God gives us things like word, sacraments, and prayer. He uses these to strengthen us, to support us, to uphold us in the time of trial. These are not sunny day activities. These are the very swords and shields that maintain us in the fight. If men carry these things in their heart, the same way they stockpile guns and ammunition, our families would be much safer. These are the means by which the Spirit supports us, by which He makes us holy in a world of sin and temptation, by which we withstand the schemes of the devil. My friends, God has not given us these things without a reason. If we are not daily affording ourselves to them, we put our lives and the lives of our family and the lives of our church in great peril. Lastly, I leave you with this. Pray that God would restore us when we fall. You know, as it says, God leads you, God doesn't drag you. If you I don't know if you've ever dragged a dead body. Uh, it's, le- it's lifeless. It's hard. You can't lead a dead body. God says that He will lead us. What that tells me is that when the righteous fall six times, God will extend His hand even a seventh. Sin is all around us. We need to be ready. We need to remember the character of our God. He doesn't prod us. He doesn't shove us. He leads us. Confess our sin and pray as David would say, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Do not wallow in shame and guilt. Do not stay where you are. God will be faithful to restore all those who come to Him. Today, pray with me. Sin, society, and Satan long to tear you and me and our families and this church apart. But God has promised to lead us through the mountaintops and the valleys, 
from rock bottom to the land beyond the clouds. Today is the day that we stop playing the tough guy. Today is the day that we pray. Lead on, King Eternal. Lead on until He finally brings us home. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in, our, in the marrow of our bones, we know that we are corrupt and crippled. That the way to heaven is hard and fraught with danger. As Thomas Boston once said, that ever since we were kicked out of paradise, the way of heaven has been hedged with thorns. And it is hard. We see loved ones falling to the wayside. We see sin and Satan infiltrating even our most sacred places. And in our heart of hearts, we often ask, Lord, am I the next one to go? But we pray this day, Heavenly Father, that you would lead us, that you would keep us, that you would support us, that you would restore us, that you would bring us home. We cannot do this alone. Lead us, Heavenly Father. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you would stand with